you. Thank you so much for putting this together and for hosting me. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here and to see some old friends and to um, meet new ones and engage in this conversation. I think um, what I'm going to do is talk about some things that I think are critical to be thinking about and looking at in the field of finance. Um, and then in the discussion, we can talk more about like how we do that critically. But um, some of how we do that critically will just come out as a matter of course in the way that I present this material. But I want to um, talk mainly about four things. The first is um, the really increasing importance since the global financial crisis of non-market-based financial arrangements. Um, <clears throat> and by that, I mean um, everything from non-exchange-based trading, so over-the-counter trading, dark pools, that sort of stuff, um, but other kinds of non-market-based transactions that are seeking a different kind of return from conventional finance. So I include under this heading um, venture capital and impact investing as well, um, and philanthropic capital, um, by which I mean the kind of shading of the boundary between philanthropy and investment that's taking place with a lot of the major philanthropies and with some of the new ones that have come about, um, come into being in the past 10 years or so that specifically seek a return on what they imagine to be an investment. So um, I say this both as a scholar of this stuff and as someone who's been caught up in some of these networks with the Gates Foundation and the Omidyar net Network, um, but also now as a dean, and I can speak from my perspective as someone for whom 50% of my job is supposed to be fundraising, where I interact with people um, who very often explicitly frame their donation, right, their gift, in terms of ROI. Um, and I have to then kind of think about that for a little bit and figure out how to talk about what we do at the university in terms of a, retur a return on philanthropic investment. Um, I think that it's important to think about these non-market-based um, financial arrangements for a number of reasons. One is that since the, the GFC began, and I think we can say it's still ongoing, um, you know, the, the Fed is in the United States is only just beginning to raise interest rates. Um, since it began, there's been uh, a couple of interesting sort of bizarre quests for profit going on, right? There's been this sort of quest for profit on the part of, of finance capital actors who can't make the kind of return in the markets that they used to make. And so they seek out other strategies. Um, and here's where you know venture capital is an interesting thing to think about. At the same time, those redirections of money out of the traditional markets and into other domains have spurred entire industries um, that otherwise wouldn't have seen this kind of investment. And you know, we can talk about um, the, the gig economy, we can talk about you know, the various sorts of sharing economy platforms which are utterly dependent on venture capital, um, but also closer to the work that I do, the payments industry. Um, and the payments industry before the GFC was pretty boring. It was you know, the card networks and um, some of the interbank clearing systems that mostly sit behind the scenes of everything um, and themselves derive their own income, their own profit from rent. These are enterprises that basically collect um, tolls on transactions, charges on using the, the so-called rails um, or pipes of the payments industry. Well, with the GFC, tons of money went into payments, um, in part because of um, the revolution of the smartphone, 
but also because there was just nowhere else for money to go, if you have the point of view of someone who's always looking for some you know, nice hefty return on, on your investments. There was, nothing to, there was nothing to do in the stock market. Right? I mean, I can, now I can quote from, from some of my informants. There was nothing in the stock market. The stock market was sideways. Um, and so people put their money into other ventures just straight up expecting some gigantic return. Um, so that, that's one bundle of things. Um, oh, uh, sort of <laughs> Non-market-based non non financial things. Um, the second thing I wanted to point out, which is related to that, <clears throat> is uh, the increasing importance of the infrastructures of finance. Um, and I think of the work of um, Juan Pablo Pardo Guerra here, looking at the kind of development of some of these infrastructures in the context of all of the acquisitions that we've seen over the past 10 years um, of the various exchanges with one another, where I don't even know anymore who owns what, with New York Stock Exchange and Euronext and et cetera, et cetera. They're all kind of merging and becoming one sort of thing um, in the interest of generating faster trades, faster settlement, reducing settlement latency, and so forth, um, to try to engage in some of the um, re-risking that they want to do post-financial crisis. So if we had this period of de-risking, now there's a uh, effort to kind of use infrastructure to speed things up, um, to, to basically um, reduce sediment latency and re-risk. That, that bundle of stuff is interesting, not just because infrastructure is interesting um, all by itself, but because there are potential new infrastructures um, that are being piloted right now. Um, I've been doing some work on distributed ledger systems, blockchain-based systems, and their use in um, the financial markets. Some of the most interesting stuff taking place right now is um, with the, the DTCC, the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation, which is experimenting with using a distributed ledger um, in place of its, its older infrastructure for um, immobilizing shares and then clearing and settling them. Um, <clears throat> there's actually a lot more activity going on in other weird kind of eddies and side flows of finance right now using distributed ledgers specifically around supply chain management, um, to start doing things with bills of lading that's pretty interesting and that actually, you know, forgive me, but actually seems to work <laughs> and maybe even be useful. Um, sorry, but I know, I've gone native a little bit. Like, it's the sort of thing with the blockchain stuff, you're like, oh wow, that's actually a problem that needs a solution, and maybe this is the, the hammer that you need for that nail. So, um, but I think that, you know, together with all of the activity happening in the traditional infrastructures, as well as some of these new potentially disruptive infrastructures or stuff that we should be thinking about and thinking about critically there. Um, particularly if we see infrastructures, existing infrastructures, as settled political claims, right? Infrastructures are the tracks laid down by old political arguments and like someone won and now we have this track. Um, but that's all opening up right now and there's potential for sort of new, new switches, new connections, um, entirely new railways, um, so to speak. That's the second thing. The third thing related to that is I think that um, we need to start thinking more critically about automaticity and automation. Um, for me, this comes out of some of the stuff happening with blockchain um, and with the use of blockchain technology to create um, smart contracts, little bits of code that automatically execute when certain conditions are met. Um, and that then allow for other kinds of financial transactions to happen. 
in the in the um, supply chain management case, you can really kind of play that out very nicely, right? Like, um, if the container was sealed up in Seoul and arrives in the port of Long Beach, still all sealed up and the, the seals are still intact, and it still weighs X number of tons, then just go ahead and release the, the bill of lading, right? Then just go ahead and re release the payment and then maybe even um, do other fancy things um, if we want to do other fancy finance things with that. Um, what interests me about this, though, isn't just the fact of its existence and that, as I said, it seems to work. It's that in the way that developers talk about this, it has the potential to start blending um, high and low finance. And I think of the work of Liz McFall here on um, the early insurance industry doing this, where you had kind of people's everyday transactions at the turn of the century, turn of the last century, um, <coughs> getting leveraged up into high finance through the vehicle of insurance. With some of the systems that people are talking about now, you could imagine um, a kind of securitization of everything, the rendering of property interests in everything, in divisible shares. Um, I'll give you an example in a moment that was given to me, into, into, into shares that then could be automatically traded with one another when certain conditions were met. So the example that was given to me by um, somebody in the payments industry who's sort of becoming increasingly involved in the distributed ledger space was you could take my jacket and um, render it into partable shares, which would then automatically be traded um, for little bits of IBM stock um, if condition X, Y, or Z were met. I would still have my jacket, I would still be wearing it, but I'd be liberating the capital that's, that's sort of dormant within it to do other sorts of things for me in my, in my retirement portfolio or whatever. That was the example that he used. Um, it, it's a sort of silly example, but if you put it into the world of the Internet of Things and micropayments happening among um, smart things and then derivatives built on top of those micropayments, then you start to have something kind of interesting and novel, automatic trading based on the, the liberation of latent assets in everything. Um, <clears throat> for me as an anthropologist, the imagination of that is almost more interesting than the, than the potential reality. Um, and it speaks to, I think, still the kind of passion, and I think about this in terms of like passions and interests, Tertian style, the passion that people in finance still have for um, a world of unfettered risk that they don't feel that like they have right now. Um, so that's my, my third point. And my last thing is, um, if we take seriously altogether now these new non-market-based financial arrangements, old infrastructures and new infrastructures that are vying for position with them, and then this kind of rise of automaticity and the securitization of everything, then for the critical project, um, I think to um, Bob Meister's work and ask, what are the choke points? Um, if you know his work um, on liquidity, he's a political theorist, and he writes about um, the centrality in Marx's day of coal miners who occupied this critical choke point in the entire flow of everything having to do with in industrialization, in part because the way coal is mined, just visualize it, it's way down there in the ground. There's like one set of tracks and cars going down there. There's miners digging, they come up. Um, they're pretty difficult to control, right? 
um, and they can sort of scuttle the whole works by going on strike in a big way, and then you have no more coal for your plants, and the whole thing um, starts to freeze. And he talks about this drawing on Timothy Mitchell's work um, in relation to then the transition from coal to oil and how challenging it is for there to be choke points in an oil economy that is a liquid economy that doesn't require as many workers, um, where thing, more things can be automated, blah, 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 blah. Meister then carries that Timothy Mitchell thing up to the present um, and the world of securitized debt and asks, what are the choke points now? And his now is like 2007, 2008. Um, he ends up focusing on student debt um, and students as a critical choke point. Um, and he's doing that in dialogue with the strike debt movement and, um, and those people who were you know, basically hacking the secondary market um, in uh, student debt and in medical debt, um, buying debt, uh, raising money to buy debt up at pennies on the dollar and then just forgiving it. Um, so then what would be the choke points for this sort of future that I'm sketching? Um, I'm not really sure. You know, I think about the utter dependence of all of the things I've talked about on another crucial infrastructure, which is just the electricity grid. So maybe there's a choke point there to be thinking about. Um, Joan Donovan, uh, who works a little bit in that zone, always talks about unplugging. Um, I don't know that it's that simple to just kind of unplug, but um, it's something to think about. So I'll leave it there and hand it off to Joanna.